As we said before, we're in a, in a series called Big Stories. We're seeking to dive a little deeper into these stories we probably learned as children in order to see what else we can learn about them now that we're adults, to go a little deeper than just the children's book versions of each of these stories. And we come today to what is probably the most famous story in the Bible, Noah and the Flood, or Noah's Ark. And the Sunday school lesson that we're offered when we hear this story is, I don't know, there's maybe a couple. One of them is to trust God even when God asks you to do weird things. And in the end, God will save you, right? In that version of the story, Noah has to build an ark even though it's never rained before. And all the surrounding people come out and mock and laugh at Noah, which doesn't happen in the Bible version of the story, but it makes the story more interesting. Noah continues on with his work, builds the ark. God shuts him in and saves Noah and his family and everyone else is wiped out. So trust God even if God asks you to do something strange. The other Sunday school lessons are, I don't know, animal husbandry, something. Keep animals. God cares for them and for us. The rainbow at the end is always people's favorite, a symbol that God looks down and cares for us even in the storms of life. They're great lessons, but when we come to look at this story again as adults, I think there are at least two things that jump out immediately. The first is that kids have no business reading this story. Have you read it? I mean, Genesis 6 through 9, the whole actual story of Noah and the flood, it's pretty grim. Everyone dies. Everything dies. Kids shouldn't be reading this stuff. I don't know why we put it in all of their children's Bibles. Everyone dies. That's the first thing we notice. The second thing, which is what I really want to talk about today, is that in this story is really the whole of the gospel. So as we hear it again, I'll tell you what I mean by that. We don't have time this morning to listen to the whole Noah saga. It's four chapters long, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. So you can go home and read it later and find out what I chose to skip. We're going to listen in to two larger portions of this story, which will give us really the heart of what's going on here with Noah and the ark. So as we open God's word, do what you need to to listen well to words from the book we love. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. Its length 
shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put a door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened The rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons entered into the ark. They and the wild animals of every kind and all domestic animals of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily that all the high mountains under heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. The waters swelled on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and the wild animals, and all the domestic animals with him in the ark. And after seven days, excuse me, and God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At that End of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We'll hear a little bit of the end of the story in a few minutes. But I think one of the reasons this story is in all of our children's Bibles and that we love to tell it to our kids is is because we can kind of ignore all of that destruction because of the illustrations. 
right? The pictures of Noah's Ark are so beautiful. All the animals. We have a a pop-up book of Noah's Ark that's in my office. It's gorgeous. All the animals streaming into the Ark, the fun of it being stuck in the Ark. We just ignore the smell. It's a beautiful time. The water's swelling, the rainbow at the end. It's beautiful. This morning, though, I want to dive beneath all that color and pull on a couple of the threads of this story to see what it has to tell us. And the first thing is actually right at the beginning. As people seek to outline this whole book of Genesis, the last half is pretty easy. From chapters 12 through 50, it's the story of Abram and Sarai and their descendants. God promised to be their God, to make them into a great nation, and we watch as God works even in the midst of great obstacles to be faithful to those promises. The first 11 chapters, though, are a little more difficult to categorize. Most people end up categorizing them as just a downward spiral. This is the wheels falling off the cart. Adam and Eve make their decision to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and of evil, They sin, and with that sin, brokenness enters into all of creation, and we watch as it just spirals and spirals and spirals. It's not long after they're out of the garden that their son Cain kills their son Abel. It's not long after that until the twisted violence of Lamech arises. It's not far after that until we run into this. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, And that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Things have just spiraled out of control. Sin has spread. Brokenness is everywhere. Evil is growing and growing. And as God takes stock of what has become of this good creation, we learn something really interesting. And it grieved him to his heart. That surprise anyone? That as God surveys the sin and evil of the world, God is not furious. God is not angry. God is not filled with vengeance. God is grieved. Now, just like the creation story we looked at last week, there's a mountain of evidence that this flood story is another story that the people of God borrowed from their neighbors. In fact, almost every ancient culture that we've discovered has some sort of great flood story. Now, one of the oldest ones we've found is called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it was written around 2400 BC. It includes the story in it of a man named Utnapishtim. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Now, in his days, the gods began to get sick of these human slaves they'd created. See, they There were too many of them. They'd multiplied rather quickly and abundantly, and they were just too loud. So the gods decided in their anger at being sort of disrupted by these human beings to just wipe them all out with a flood. Luckily, one of the gods liked this Utnapishtim, so he went down and told him about the plan and said, you should really build a big boat, take two of every animal, male and female, with you onto it so that when the floods come, you will survive and so will all these animals, and at the end, we can sort of reseed the world. Floodwaters come, wipe out everything, and all those gods that were angry kind of regretted what they did. Maybe we went a little too far. So when they find Utnapishtim, they're glad. When the waters recede, they end up giving him eternal life because of his work in helping to preserve humanity and creation. 
except for some of the details. Sound a little familiar? Like the story of creation last week, the people of God took this well-known story, repeated with very small variation across almost every culture in their day, and they changed it. And they changed it again at very key points to tell us something very different about our God. Perhaps the most obvious thing is that our God does not seek to destroy creation out of anger at what we've done wrong. But as God sees this evil, God is grieved to God's heart. Our God is not a God of wrath and fury. Too often we buy into this false dichotomy of an Old Testament God who's just angry all the time and a New Testament God who's now nice. There is no such division within God. There is no wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament who transforms into a God of grace suddenly in the new. There is one God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to stop buying into those stereotypes and look more closely at our stories. Because this God, even all the way back in Noah's story, is not a God who sits far off dealing angrily with loud and disobedient slaves, but a God who grieves evil and brokenness and sin. Now certainly we, can't understand, we must understand that saying that God is grieved is a metaphor. God is not human. God doesn't experience emotions as we do. God exists outside of time as we understand it. God is not vulnerable and powerless and despairing in the way that we are as we grieve. But to say that God grieves is to communicate that what happens to us and God's creation touches God deeply. That God has chosen to be open to us and the world around us, to bind himself to us. That God is near such that when God surveys the landscape and finds brokenness in every corner, God is grieved and moved into action. And you better bet that the same thing is true today. That as our God looks around at the world in which we see, at the evil that is spreading, at disaster that looms, at brokenness that crushes, God looks around and God is grieved. The Bible's primary purpose is always to tell us something about our God. So before we go any further, make sure to understand that our God is not an absentee, angry, and abusive father figure. God is so closely bound up to God's creation that God is grieved by sin and evil that we see around us every day. That's the first thread I want to pull on. But the second thing that we need to talk about in this story is something that comes right after that. The destruction Here I am saying God is grieved and God cares, and yet God goes on to announce the decision made by that grieving to wipe out everything on the earth except eight people and two of every animal. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that that probably doesn't sit too well with you. So God is grieved by this evil of the world, but is that really the best solution we could come up with? Mass extinction and genocide? How can a God who's even remotely Uh, trustworthy or loving, commit such an atrocity. It doesn't sit well with us. 
we have a pretty big problem generally with God's wrath and with destruction and punishment. We would love to have a God who in the end just saves everyone. From our cultural perspective, we don't think that anyone, or at least anyone who's generally considered to be good, or at least anyone who's not considered bad, should have to deal with punishment and judgment in the end. But maybe this different perspective will help. See, the destruction we see in the flood is really nothing more than getting what we've chosen and asked for. You may have noticed some of the details sounded familiar from Genesis 1 if you were here last week. Because the waters that flood the earth and destroy it here in Genesis 6 through 9 are the same waters that existed at the beginning of creation. It was over those waters that God spoke creation into existence, if you remember. It was those waters that God pushed back with the dome of the sky to separate the waters above the sky with the waters under the sky. It was those waters that God gathered together to let dry land appear upon which vegetation and then birds and then animals and finally humanity was then created. But here in the flood, we watch as that creation order collapses, as it is reversed We go back now to day two and watch as holes are punched in the dome of the sky that water would fall down as water bubbles up from the deep and swallows humanity, animals, birds, vegetation, and even every square inch of the earth itself. It's that pre-creation chaos that God allows to sweep over the earth and undo what God had done which is, I think, nothing more than what we had asked for. Because that original sin in the garden and every one we've committed since has been to choose ourselves as God, to choose our ways over God's ways, to reject God's and God's gifts, to make our own way in the world. Commentator R.R. Reno, who wrote a commentary on Genesis, said this, God does not pour out an alien wrath or muster an invading force. God opens the floodgates of our desire for things of the earth. The flood is what happens when the decision of Adam and Eve is given free reign. We drown in the consummation of our finite loves. Which is to say that the destruction of the flood is not to receive some undeserved evil and injustice poured out by a sinister God. It's to receive what we asked for. We rejected the creator, the orderer of all things. We asked to be our own gods, and so God now allows us to receive the world as we could order it ourselves, as we could create it, as we could sustain it. We ask to be God, so God hands over the reins and removes his hand which has held back the chaos, the death, and the nothingness. The destruction is not something undeserved. It is God allowing us to receive that for which we've asked. Life without God. Yet even as God allows us to receive this, God still holds back just a portion of that destruction and provides an ark. 
as the floodwaters destroy evil and everything in their path, they also buoy up a small ship carrying eight human beings and two of every kind of animal. God saves a remnant as God is prone to do and holds back the full fury of evil and destruction that a few may survive. In the midst of the flood, then, in chapter 8-1, things turn. For God remembers Noah. And in God's remembering, Noah is held fast, as we sang earlier. And so the waters begin to recede until they are gone altogether. The boat lands on the mountains of Ararat. Eventually, they open the ark and step out onto dry land. And then everyone lives happily ever after, right? If you still have your Bible open, let's look at the end of the story. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For every inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. At the end of the story, nothing really seems to have changed. God says he won't do it again, but every inclination of the human heart is still toward evil from youth. So what's been accomplished in all this destruction? Everyone is wiped out, but the one righteous person and his family, and yet at the end, there's still sin. And we watch as it plays out. It's not long before Noah plants a vineyard, makes some wine, and then gets wasted. And then something kind of sketchy happens with his son that the Bible's really vague about. And it's not long after this until humanity storms the gates of heaven with the Tower of Babel. Sin continues its spiral down and down and down. So what was the point of it all? And why do we even tell this story? Here is perhaps the most important thing you need to learn about the story of Noah. Noah and the ark and the animals are not the main characters. This is not a story about them at all. This is a story about God. And the God who after the waters of the flood recede says, Never again will I destroy every living creature as I have done. Because not only has God committed to God's creation, not only is God grieved by its evil, but God has now chosen a different path to deal with that evil, to rescue this creation God loves so deeply. God now commits not to pour out the destruction we've asked for and deserve, but to be a God of mercy and forbearance to hold back the destruction we've chosen until something can be done about it. And so from this day forward, God begins down a new path, a path not toward destruction, but a path toward being destroyed. Because what's wrong in the world can't be fixed by simply stripping the world back to its studs and starting over again. This is not a remodeling project that we need. 
What's wrong in the world can't be fixed by us. God had picked the best among us. And on the other side, sin still reigned. This is not about self-improvement. What's wrong in the world can only be fixed when God swallows the poison apple we picked from the tree. When God takes into God's self our sin and brokenness and rebellion. When God opens up the floodgates of destruction and chaos and empties them on his own head. The new path God begins down on this day ends when God becomes human And in Jesus takes into himself all of the destruction we deserve. It's on the cross where Jesus plunges beneath the waters of the flood. It's on the cross where he experiences creation ripped apart. Where he endures the full weight of destruction that's been held back from every one of us. And there Jesus drowns under the weight of it. Taking our evil into himself, he is destroyed by the flood. But what we lose sight of in the gloom of Good Friday is the small ark still bobbing up and down in the waters of the flood. The ark holding the smallest remnant possible. The dead body of one man. The only one who was ever righteous. The only one who was ever truly holy, ever truly right. And three days later, as the ark of a grave bursts open and Jesus Christ rises victorious then over all of the sin and over all the brokenness and all, over all the chaos of our world. And friends, we get invited into the floodwaters ourselves to share in the victory. To come into the waters of baptism and there to dive in and to drown with Jesus. To join him in his death. That the evil and sin and brokenness within us might finally be destroyed once and for all. And there to join him too in his victory. To join him in the ark of his own body. To rise up out the other side victorious and transformed, holy and righteous, belonging now finally to him. God chooses after the flood to be a God for us and a God with us. God chooses never again to destroy all flesh with the flood, but to withhold the destruction we have chosen until the day he can drink it in himself fully, when he can be destroyed, and in dying himself finally do what the flood never could have done. Restore us to him. Carry us along to the Sabbath rest of God. Bring us home. And so maybe in the end, the Sunday school version of the story did get it right. I want you to hear the end of the story as it's told in one of my favorite kids' Bibles, the Jesus Storybook Bible. At last, the boat landed suddenly on top of a great mountain. And as soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did. Everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. The first thing that God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrows at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I've hung my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds... Just where the storm meets the sun was a beautiful bow made of light. 
It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew that would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. See, God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or on his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of grace, that you do not deal with us as we deserve but that in the fullness of time, you became one of us to drink in the flood yourself, to take this destruction that we had chosen and to be destroyed in order that somehow we may be saved, that we may be carried in the ark of your own body, that we may rise up victorious out the other side of the grave with Jesus that we may now die to sin and to our old lives and rise to new life in you, that we may now offer you the sacrifice of our lives and give you everything we are and work for your glory in the world, Father, Son, and Spirit. You, Lord, are the solid rock that holds us through all things, so keep us and hold us fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.